there will not be a test at the end. I'm tempted, but no test. Uh, this is, I have four and a half hours over three weeks to more or less explain the universe to you because that's what uh, Dante does. Um, he's encyclopedic, encyclopedic uh, in his knowledge and um, he's an expert poet and storyteller and you put all that together and you can't do it justice in four and a half hours of four and a half years or four and a half lifetimes probably, but we'll do what we can. Uh, I'm going to give you some backgrounds on Dante, uh, some biography, some background on how one would, uh, needs to go about interpreting uh, Dante's literature, a background on the Divine Comedy itself, and then we'll start the Inferno, which is the first part of the three-part work um, of the Divine Comedy. We might not finish the Inferno. Maybe I'll purposely not finish it so you'll come back next week. But uh, I hope to get through most of it. Maybe we'll finish. Then next week, the bulk should be dedicated to the Purgatorio, and then the third week to the Paradiso. Uh, and then uh, when I go home tonight, I'll kick myself for all that I left out. Uh, and I'll do that three weeks in a row. But that's how it is at school as well. Okay, uh, Dante lived from 1265 to 1321. I tell my students this, uh, these are actually important dates. The 1265 date uh, ends up being important and um, uh, because of the date that the poem is set. And I'll explain that in a minute. Um, but that, this is one date I make them memorize at 1265. The 1321, not so important, but 1265 is. Uh, there he is, um, fairly uh, well-known picture. Here's Dante with the Divine Comedy. Florence uh, here to his left. Uh, this is uh, hell, Purgatorio, and the Paradiso would be surrounding him. So his, his life work and his beloved hometown there. Let's see if I can work this correctly. Uh-huh. Whoops. Skipped two. Uh, he was born in Florence uh, but died in Ravenna. Uh, Ravenna has his bones. Florence would like to have them back because it, it's his, their greatest uh, or her greatest uh, son uh, uh, who was exiled, whom they exiled uh, in 1302, much to their uh, future shame. So if you want to uh, uh, visit his, uh, there's a tomb for him in Florence and they're waiting, I guess. Uh, just very briefly, uh, what we know about Dante comes from Dante's own writings. In the Divine Comedy, he tells us much about himself because he's the main character. Uh, but since it's a, a narrative poem, you can't be sure whether or not he's always telling the truth. Uh, then he wrote another poem called Vita Nuova, which has biographical information. But again, scholars aren't, can't be sure whether or not it's just the story in parts that he's telling. Uh, and then he had some early biographers. And of course, there are uh, documents, legal documents, um, he met Be uh, Beatrice Portinari, Beatrice, uh, when he was nine and fell in love with her, so he's quite precocious. Uh, this was the great love of his life, and we don't know really how many times they even met. Uh, he tells us, I think, of two times that they met after this. Uh, so he was destined uh, to marry someone else, and she was destined to marry someone else, and um, it wasn't going to happen. It wasn't that important either because she represents for Dante as for other 
medievals, uh, the ideal woman, a woman that can be loved from afar and purely, a very chivalric. He married instead Gemma Donati, 1283. Uh, Beatrice had her own husband. She died young, uh, which uh, greatly affected Dante. And uh, shortly after his death, her death, he wrote the Vita Nuova and uh, felt uh, quite guilty uh, for being unfaithful to her in his heart. So um, even though he might have only uh, spoken with her twice or thrice in his life. I wrote the autobiographical Vita Nuova, uh, elected prior of Florence in 1300. Uh, this was uh, the highest political position in Florence, held it for two months. There were six priors. It shows his political involvement. There's a lot of politics in the Divine Comedy, and I'm not going to address that. It's very uh, difficult to follow, and it's less universal than other issues, such as philosophical and uh, theological issues. Uh, sent to Rome in 1301 to meet with the Pope. This was for political reasons. Uh, exiled while he was gone in early 1302 on corruption charges. And what he was uh, exiled on becomes important because in his inferno, uh, there's a circle dedicated to the crime that he was charged with. Uh, and so his reaction to those criminals or sinners is, tends up, turns up being important. Uh, lived in various Italian cities until his death in Ravenna in 1321. He lived with um, rich people. Do you have a question? Well, he, uh, he's, fr he's from a moderately well-to-do uh, middle-class family, married into a banking family, which is interesting because bankers don't fare too well in the Divine Comedy. But um, he was well enough known that in Italy he didn't... He was exiled, and there was great uh, spiritual and psychological pain. He never went back to Florence. He was part of a plot at one point to go back and take back the city, but he didn't go through with it. Uh, but he was well known enough to live comfortably in his exile. He might have gone to Paris. He might have left Italy. Uh, scholars aren't completely sure his, his whereabouts. There was no NSA then to be tracking him. Dante's universe, uh, this ends up being very important as well. This is uh, largely the medieval universe, a geocentric universe. Uh, I want to point out a few things. Uh, here's the Earth. Uh, this is... Uh, hell is actually here. Uh, it's an upside-down conical-shaped cavern, in effect. Uh, directly opposite it, and it's in the southern hemisphere, what's called the hemisphere of water. I'm sorry, in the northern hemisphere, the hemisphere of uh, land. The southern hemisphere has the a purgatory, which is a mountain, directly opposite, and it is um, uh, capped with the um, earthly paradise, or Eden, um, it is directly opposite Jerusalem, Christ's uh, crucifixion here. Followed uh, or surrounded by um, sphere of air, then sphere of fire. So we get the earth, air, water, and fire, all the four elements here. Then we have the various spheres of the moon and the planets and the sun, uh, which were considered to be literal uh, spheres that were solid. So when Dante gets to paradise, when he starts flying through the uh, heavens at the speed of light, um, he wonders why he isn't bumping into things. Uh, then we get to, to the very top, we get the uh, Empyrean, which is the place of God. So God here uh, in the heavens, the furthest heavens, is 
as far away from Earth as you can get. And in fact, the furthest point from God in the universe then is the very center of the Earth uh, and the person that belongs there, the angelic person that belongs there is Satan, and that's, why, that's where we will find him. He's at the very furthest point from God that's possible. Um, so that's a um, quick tour of the medieval uh, universe. Dante inherited uh, from the Greeks, of course, and then I think his innovation is the placement of purgatory, which is important allegorically. Did Dante really believe uh, purgatory was there? Well, he had never been there, didn't see it. It's just it's a product of his imagination. Uh, the great chain of being, I'm going to go through this uh, very uh, quickly, this uh, Dante inherits too from medieval thought. Uh, God's at the top, pure being, the angels are pure spirits. Uh, the order of the angels here, uh, from the highest to the lowest, poor just angel angels at the bottom, is the order that you encounter the angels in Dante's paradise. So each one has an assignment in the spheres. So it's, uh, you can see Dante's, the, his uh, world and the uh, Divine Comedy is highly structured and highly ordered. And the uh, disorder you find will be in the Inferno. The Inferno is uh, chaos ordered. There's chaos in the midst of order. So it's a brilliant way of looking at uh, hell. Corporal beings, beings with material bodies, man, animals, plants, and minerals. So... Uh, Animal, vegetable, mineral. What is it? So this is the uh, hierarchy. And you've got, uh, if you're at the top man, he has everything that the others have below him. Uh, so the animals have what the others have below. So man has a spirit and will, but he also has appetite and intelligence. He has life, growth, and reproduction, and material existence. Animals have everything but the spirit and the will. Okay, so Dante, when he's building... Uh, his universe, this is all part of his way of looking at the world. Not just his way. A lot of background. Okay. Um, man's soul, this is important because uh, this is how Dante orders the inferno, according to this uh, principle. The intellect seeks the truth. It can't help but seek the truth. Uh, the will follows the good. It can't help but follow the good. So even when people commit heinous crimes, their will is following the good. It's a misidentified good or a disordered good, but it's following the good. It can't help it. Emotions, uh, the emotion seeks pleasure and avoids pain. And here the senses receive material images. So that's how one knows and then can, then can choose. Uh, the uh, inferno will be ordered in the opposite direction. So those at the top of hell, who are the least guilty, but in hell nevertheless, uh, followed, they, they put their emotions at the top. Uh, they were guided by their emotions. Uh, the second uh, realm, more or less, uh, are those who have corrupted wills. And the third have either corrupted intellects or they sought to corrupt the intellect. And these are the most grievous sins. So that fraud, which is at the bottom, uh, is worse than murder, which is higher up in hell for Dante. So when we get to that, I'll address that further, I think. Um, so it doesn't really seem to be right, but according to Dante's scheme, it makes perfect sense what happens. So, okay. The Divine Comedy itself, when I transferred from PowerPoint to um, 
what's this called? Keynote. Keynote. It, I lost all my italics. So Lacomedia should be italicized. Um, Composed that these are guest dates. We don't know for sure. I uh, didn't write it past that. He's not C.S. Lewis. He, he kept writing years and years and years after he died. You know, there's a new book by C.S. Lewis. It comes out every year. But um, <laughs> La Comedia, while in exile. So if he hadn't been exiled, we might not have this. The, uh, so we called it The Comedy. That was the name of it. It became known as Divine Comedy later, but it's The Comedy. There's not that much funny stuff in it, so uh, you don't want to be deceived there. There's a little bit of humor in the Inferno. Uh, so there's irony in the Inferno. You don't find irony in Well, there actually is some irony in Paradiso, the irony of surprise, but the people aren't ironic. They don't have ironic attitudes. Uh, there's irony in the, in the Inferno. Some, there's a little bit of humor, but comedia means it's got a happy ending. And it's written in the vernacular, the language that the ordinary person could understand, and that was Italian. So he could write in Latin. He wrote other things in Latin, but this he chose to write in the vernacular. That, coupled with the happy ending, because he goes to heaven, uh, makes it a comedy. It has the three canticles, or we, we might call books, Inferno Purgatorio Paradiso, 100 cantos. Uh, the first one has 34, and the other two, 33. Now, the three is the most important number in Dante. There are a lot of threes. Things are built on threes. Um, the first canto, if you take it as a prologue to the entire work, then you get 33 cantos for the Inferno, 30 for Purgatory, and 33 for Pretty. So, there, so there's a 33-33-33. But Dante also likes to turn um, the three, the three into, into a 10. So um, the, each of the sections, Inferno, Purgatorio, Perdiso, each one has nine major sections plus one extra one that doesn't quite fit. So it's both nine and 10. So the uh, Divine Comedy is both 99, 33 threes, uh, parts or um, cantos plus that one extra prologue. So it's also a multiple of 10. So he likes to do that. He's like, he likes to square the circle or circle the square, whichever it is. Square the circle. Uh, it has 14,233 hindecasyllabic lines. Anyone know what hindecasyllabic means? That's 11 syllable lines. He does some cheating in the counting of syllables, as all poets do. But um, he's very um, orderly that way. Um, terza rima, that's the rhyme scheme. I'm going to show you that in a minute. But he has a special rhyme scheme. Uh, the work is in tercets. Uh, so all the stanzas are three lines. And then each canto ends with a single extra line which turns out, I think, to be important. Uh, 11 times 3 hindecasyllabic lines times 3 lines per um, tercet gives us that number 33 again, which is the number of cantos. Now, people say, was well, that just the, did he plan that? Well, we don't know, but it's too, there's too much of it to think that it's not planned. Yes? When you're talking about the syllables, are you talking about in Italian? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, now, the rhyme scheme and the, um, the metrical scheme, if you want to call it that, uh, generally speaking, can't translate into another language. Uh, Dorothy Sayers uh, did the rhyme scheme, which is, I'll show it here and I'll show it in a minute again, A, B, A, B, C, B, C, D, C, et cetera, et cetera. That means the first and third lines always rhyme, and then the middle line rhymes with the first line of the next stanza. And he does that throughout the canto, then he has the extra 
line. Dorothy Sayers does that in her translation in English. And I believe she attempts iambic pentameter, which is an English metrical scheme. The problem is that she has to make too many changes. So her, her translation has a lot of weaknesses to it, but she has great notes. So I would take her book and read the notes and read someone else's translation. But she has excellent notes. Uh, and then written in the vernacular. Dorothy Sayers, she, she wrote the Lord Peter Whimsey series. So she was part of that, um, the English Mystery Writers Guild, Chesterton was in it, and... No, it was the ones dedicated just to the mysteries, just to mysteries. Um, oh, well, black with red, you can't quite see this, but in the original, uh, as tercets, you can see it fine on my iPad. Um, <laughs> The, the lines are ending, uh, vita, oscura, smarita, that's the first tercet, then dura, forte, paura, morte. So we have vita and ita are rhyming. Then cura, cura rhymes with dura and paura. And then forte is rhyming with morte and scorte. And so that, the vi, we can tell that vi is going to be the next line. So that's the tercet. But if you just picked it up, and read the first four lines, you get vita, oscura, smarita, dura. You think he's writing in quatrains. And in fact, the last line of each canto, since it, it uh, would make the last tercet a quatrain. So he takes the, the quatrain and merges it with the tercet and merges it with the quatrain. And he does that for 100 cantos. Now, I tell my students, don't try this at home, okay? This is for professional poets. You might harm yourself. You know, when you're exiled, what else are you going to do? <laughs> uh, Dante is a poet. It's easy to get stuck on um, the theology. There's theology, there's philosophy, there's astronomy, there's meteorology, there's geography. Uh, there's, uh, did I say geometry? That's, it's all of uh, medieval knowledge. You find bits and pieces of it in the Divine Comedy. So it's easy to get stuck on that and forget that it's a narrative poem and it has uh, poetic elements. I've shown you the rhyme. And one of the uh, remarkable uh, things in Dante is the, uh, the sheer number of similes that he uses. There are hundreds of similes. You, it's hard to turn the page without bumping into a simile. And... Um, and you can't really read that very well either because of the red, but um, I'll mention a, a couple of them. These come at the very beginning. These may be the first, this one's the first one. This might be, it's at the end of Canto 1. It might be, I don't remember if there's one in between, but uh, he has come out of the dark woods. Uh, the dark wood of sin is the allegory. And he um, doesn't know how he got there. Anyway, he looks back at the dark woods. He really shouldn't be doing that. And he says, just as a swimmer, still with panting breath, now safe upon the shore, out of the deep, might turn for one last look at the dangerous waters. So a swimmer who almost drowned, barely makes it to shore, then looks back. Why are you doing that? So I, although my mind was turned to flee the dark woods, turned around to gaze once more upon the past that never let a, a living soul escape. That was the dark woods. We don't know exactly what he means by the never let a living soul escape, but He's comparing himself leaving the woods as someone who almost drowns, okay? So it raises a lot of questions, like why would you 
why wouldn't you just keep going and get away as far from it as possible? Well, it turns out, we find out right after this, when he tries to escape his, his sins, we find out that he's not um, detached from all of his sins. Sins still impede him. So the looking back at the ocean is someone looking back, probably in fear, at the thing that almost killed him. And for Dante, he's looking back to the dark woods of his sin, looking back at the thing that almost killed him, but he's not ready to let it go completely. He still wants to look at it a little bit. Okay. Uh, the other, um, no, this is in Canto too. Uh, the flower imagery, which I like. He, uh, Virgil, who's his guide through hell, meets him and says, I'm going to take you on a trip through hell. Uh, Dante says, what the hell? No, he says, um, I'm going to take you through hell. Actually, what I tell my students, these are high school students, is the good thing about studying the inferno is you can use the word hell in class a lot. <laughs> and you probably won't get in trouble for it. So he goes, I'm going to take you through hell and purgatory uh, where those are burning but joyfully and then to the heavens. And Dante says, sounds like a great idea. And then he starts thinking about it, gets cold feet. And then Virgil tells a story about the Blessed Virgin going to Santa Lucia, who went to Beatrice, Beatrice, who came to Virgil to get Dante out of, the, out of trouble. And so Dante um, bucks up, and he gets encouraged. And he compares himself to a flower, as little flowers from the frosty night are closed and limp. And when the sun shines down on them, they rise to open on their stem. My wilted strength began to bloom within me. And such warm courage flowed into my heart that I spoke like a man set free of fear. Okay, it's an odd, kind of an odd image. He's become encouraged and compares himself to a flower. Okay, so I asked my students. We could see the literal comparison, uh, and we can understand that he's standing tall now. Well, he's probably not so tall. He was Italian. But he was standing as tall as he could, and uh, like the flower coming up. So we can see that, but then I asked them, what do you think of when you think of a flower? He doesn't say which flower, so it doesn't matter. Flowers. What are some of the qualities just of flowers? Okay, and I get with a little prompting, I'll get a couple of responses. They're beautiful. Okay, so there's a beauty to Dante because he's a human person. His soul is beautiful, created in the image and likeness of God, but that can shrivel up through sin. Uh, then they'll say it's delicate or fragile, which is exactly the state that Dante finds himself in, in a state of fragility. Um, so the point here is when Dante, or really any good poet, gives you the the simile uh, or metaphor to not just leave it and say, oh, yeah, a flower does this and he does that, but then to go to the imagery that he uses and what is it about a flower, and you start thinking about it, and you learn more about Dante than he's told you up front, uh, even at uh, the, the surface reading of the simile. Okay, and I give them a project, of course, where they have to pick some out and do this themselves. I'm not going to tell them everything. I don't know everything. In fact, they tell me stuff. It's the typical, I don't say I learn more from my students than they learn from me because why are they paying me, if that were true. But I do learn things from the students. Sometimes they'll raise their hand. And at the bottom of the inferno, in fact, I got one of the most brilliant comments from a student, never maybe the most brilliant, about Satan at the pit of hell. So I'll tell you when we get there. So I do learn some things, but not as much as they learn from me. Okay. Uh, the inferno, we get the consequence of sin, and it's in darkness. Purgatory, the detachment from sin, which is alternating darkness and light because they're on the mount purgatory, so the sun rises and sets, and they can't make progress in the dark night. They have to stop whatever progress they're making. So it's darkness and light. And then Paradiso is um, 
eternal life in Christ. It is light. That's probably the most common image that's used uh, in the Paradiso. A lot of light. Uh, the Inferno is about justice. That's the title of this lecture, What I Was Once. Uh, what I Was Once Alive, I Still Am Dead. Whoops. Didn't do that right. Then um, the, um, the more one climbs, the easier it becomes. That's uh, in penance. That's the purgatorio. And in his will is our peace. You could say that's the theme of the Paradiso. He stole that from St. Augustine. That was back when you could steal stuff and it wasn't plagiarism, as long as you put it in your own words. Um, the, how, how one interprets uh, the Divine Comedy, Dante says in a famous letter to a friend of his, that doesn't look too well either. I wish I'd have known this, but maybe to turn the lights out. Um, this is a Latin form. Mr. Mackey can judge the uh, translation here. But, um, there were four levels of interpretation applied to the Bible. And Dante said, you can apply those four levels to my writing, okay, which was maybe a little impious for him to say that. He does things like this. Uh, maybe it seems a bit arrogant. You can use the principles of biblical interpretation to Dante. Well, you can try it. It works quite a bit. There's the literal level, which just says what happens, right? There's the allegorical or the symbolic level. Uh, there's the moral level, uh, which teaches what you should do, how you should act. And then there's the anagogical level, which uh, teaches you where to set your aim. But it always has to do with uh, the final judgment, uh, the new Jerusalem, the end times. That's what you're aiming towards, okay? And sometimes these, they're, they're, they overlap. Uh, the example of Solomon's temple uh, was used a couple times. Venerable B wrote about that. I think Dante did as well. Uh, the Solomon's temple is literally the uh, Solomon's temple. Uh, allegorically, it's the body of Christ, right? He says, tear, uh, I would tell down this uh, temple and rebuild in three days, whatever the line is. But that is the body of Christ. Uh, morally speaking, the, the, uh, because the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, uh, then uh, that um, causes us to act in a certain way. And then the anagogical imagery is of the new Jerusalem and the temple therein. So um, you can take various parts of Dante. You should be able to take any major imagery or, or uh, thing that happens in the plot and apply these levels and see what you get. So that's a lot of fun. Uh, and you can't be wrong to a certain degree. I mean, you can be wrong, but there's a lot of different answers that are possible. The story. Okay, very brief. I don't know why he just didn't do this, okay, because it could have gotten over with in one slide. Uh, Dante realized that he is lost. As a special grace, he has given three guides to take him to hell. Special grace. Purgatory in heaven, so that he may learn what sin is, how to overcome it, in order to be in the eternal presence of God. So who wouldn't want to do that? Uh, it's a first-person uh, medieval spiritual travelogue of the universe in which Dante draws upon all fields of human knowledge to convey his experience. Uh, and it is uh, quite impressive. Uh, his journey begins late Thursday of Holy Week, 1300, and ends exactly one week later. Uh, he actually, depending on how you read the a timeline in Dante, he tells you what time it is by the... Uh, where the sun is in the, in the stars and planets. Uh, so it's, but there's some ambiguity. But it looks like uh, Holy Thursday night, he goes down into hell on uh, Good Friday and uh, comes out of hell on Easter Sunday. And then he has a few more days to get to purgatory and heaven. His purpose, purposes, 
to reform the church and to reestablish the empire, which was weak at this point. He wanted a reestablishment of the empire ruled by a holy emperor who would rule, in effect, alongside the pope. So he was, you could say, in favor of something like separation of church and state, but there was one state and one church, and they worked together. They had different, different spheres they were responsible for, but there, were, there was no competition. But there's still one church, one state. So it's not exactly what we, what we mean, um, but something like that. Uh, so to reform the church, reestablish the empire while saving his own soul, and then really the soul of others who go along with this project. So there's a huge project here. We don't know if he was successful in any of it, really. Uh, the Inferno. Okay, here's a little picture. This is the structure. Am I going too fast? I'm throwing a lot at you, but I'm trying to cram the universe into four and a half hours. Um, there are a lot of pictures. You Google the Inferno, you're going to get a lot of pictures. Uh, you can't really see this one uh, really well, but this is, I like this one. Um, uh, has all the levels and all the sub-levels. It's got the characters, the punishments. A little picture of the heaven, uh, earth, um, the three ladies that are important to Dante and various other characters up there. Uh, there's an upper hell and there's a lower hell. Um, there is a kind of an outer vestibule before real hell's, well, hell proper. They're punished there, but he has special people reserved for the vestibule. There's limbo, which is actually a very important um, section of Dante. It holds some of the keys to understanding what Dante's doing. I spend a lot of time on limbo in class because students have a lot of questions about what Dante's doing with limbo. And he does mean largely what is meant in the Middle Ages by limbo, uh, both the uh, limbo of the, of the fathers and the limbo of infants. But he adds to this, and he, makes, he does some unusual things with it. Uh, then there are the sins of incontinence, which are really lack of self-control, the emotions, lust, gluttony, avarice, and prodigality, wrath, and sloth. And it looks like lust, gluttony, avarice, wrath, and sloth uh, can you tell what it looks like he's doing it at first? What does that look like? Those are lust, gluttony, avarice, wrath, and sloth. They're five of seven deadly, seven deadly sins. And it looks like that's what he's doing. And the next one should be envy and then pride, and he's done. Uh, but he breaks the pattern. Now, some scholars think he broke the pattern because he stopped writing, he took a vacation, he came back, changed his mind. Uh, that may be true, but it also... Uh, shows part of the disorder that's in the structure of hell. So there's the, there's the structure because hell is a part of creation, uh, but there's also disorder because it's full of sin. And so what you think you're getting into isn't what you get into. Uh, he breaks the pattern. Lower hell has a kind of heresy. He means, he means something very special by heresy. It's usually called arch heresy. Uh, and then sins of malice, which are divided into violence and fraud and the violence against neighbor, self, and God, and then those are subdivided. And then fraud, simple fraud, which are uh, natural bonds of human society. Um, for instance, if someone defrauds you when you get gasoline, it's not a, a gallon, it's 0.98 or whatever, that would be simple fraud. And then complex fraud, violating um, personal bonds uh, that we have um, within family and uh, church for example, so more personal. Okay, so it's highly, highly structured. I'm not going to go through every sin here. I'm going to go through many of them, and then I'm going to use sins as um, exemplars. 
uh, the characters in hell, I don't name anyone here, but uh, there are, by personal I mean, well, let me start with historical. By historical, there are a lot of historical characters, uh, famous characters, some not so famous, uh, but many of the names we would recognize from history. He puts them in hell, purgatory, and heaven. They're all over. Personal uh, acquaintances, friends of his, people he admired, uh, family friends, uh, they can end up any place. I mean, some, some people, one of the persons he admired most in his life is in hell. So uh, Dante doesn't reserve hell simply for his enemies and put all of his friends um, elsewhere. Uh, biblical uh, characters from old and new. Uh, mythical characters uh, are going to be found in hell. Some of them are like guardians of different circles, like Cherberus, the three-headed dog, is the guardian of the gluttons. Makes sense. So a lot of those uh, and um, part of the damned as well. They might be a guardian, and they're usually kind of a monster figure if they're guardian, but they could just simply be a mythical character, someone from uh, mythology or uh, epic poetry could find himself down there in the dams. Contrapasso. When are we going to actually... Okay, we'll get there soon. Um, Contrapasso is his method of uh, inflicting punishments, if you want to call it that, on the sinners, although really the sinners in, inflict their own punishments through their choice. Um, Contrapasso is suffering the opposite. Uh, the punishment can resemble the sin or it can uh, be a contrast to the sin. So the cowards, I call them the cowards, they're not named by Dante, uh, they never took sides, now follow a banner because in life they didn't take a side and if you take a side like in a military battle, you follow the standard, the banner, right? You have to follow that. They didn't do that, so uh, now they follow a banner. That's the contrast. Uh, but that banner is aimless, and that's the resemblance to their sins because they didn't choose a side, so they were somewhat aimless in their lives. Okay, does that. The wrath will continue sh to strike out at others. They're constantly hitting other people and biting them. And, uh, but that's the resemblance. They're also being struck. Like I said, to be struck is the contrast, uh, you might say, to, to striking. Anyway, he does this throughout. You can look at the punishments, if we want to call it that, and uh, ponder those. Um, what is he getting at? The punishments are all... No, they don't always have both. Sometimes it's one, sometimes it's both, sometimes it's the other. You kind of have to just read and uh, figure out what you think he's doing. And you, and you might see something that someone else doesn't see in the punishment. Um, okay. I say punishment that's a little too harsh because... The punishments really are self-inflicted because it's an eternal choice. Okay, I'm going to skip this because that's what I'm actually doing. Okay, the dark wood is where we start, finally, in the inferno. He begins midway along the journey of our life. This is a famous first line in literature. Midway along the journey of our life, I woke to find myself in a dark wood for I had wandered off from the straight path. So Dante does something grammatically perhaps unusual in this first sentence. This long first sentence takes three lines. Midway along the journey of our life, I woke to find myself in a dark wood for I don't know. Do you see something odd about that? Conceptually, if not grammatically? I'm sorry? The hour? Yes, the hour. Yeah, the hour life because it's in the first person singular. So what Dante's doing here from the very first line is signaling that this is indeed an allegory. And what he means this to be is the story of each person's life if he 
wants to confront sin and see what sin is, what sin is, not the illusion of sin, but sin itself. That's why it's so ugly in hell. Detach himself from his sin, purge himself from his sin, and uh, make it into the divine light. So this is our story if we want to follow Dante. If we don't follow him, um, well, we're in trouble. Uh, I woke to find myself in a dark wood. Uh, the idea that he's giving here, uh, which is hard for us to understand, the idea he's giving here, I think it's hard to understand, culturally speaking, is that this, is, this actually happened. Because what he's saying, by the fact that he woke up, he was sleepy. There's another line that said, yeah, I'd become so sleepy, is that it's not a dream. It's not a vision. If he wanted us to think it was a vision, he would say, I fell asleep, and, or I had a vision. And that's how you get a lot of that in medieval poetry, visions. And then you can say, I'm, I, um, literally, I'm not lying. I had this vision. See, I said it was a vision. It didn't really happen. But Dante's taking a chance here, really, in the Middle Ages, of being accused of being a liar, if this isn't true. He wrote it. He said it happened. It needs to be true. So that seems odd to us. But I remember as a child, I was reading a book on... It was the um, Bermuda Triangle or aliens, you know, building the pyramid, something like that. And I uh, was t telling Bobby Barnett about this, kid that lived down the street. He's two year, year older than I was. Still is, I suppose. And he, uh, he says to me, you don't believe everything you read, do you? And I thought, well, it says nonfiction on it. I believed it. Okay, so that is the kind of the innocence of the way that a writing could be approached in the Middle Ages. And you think about the fact that they didn't have printing press and there wasn't a lot of things written down. Okay, so what writing was, we have a different view of, of this than Dante Matter. But he's signaling, he's, he's taking a chance here by saying this. It's quite bold of him to say this is not a vision. Uh, how I entered there, I cannot truly say. I had become so sleepy at the moment when I first strayed, leaving the path of truth. This straight path, the path of truth, that's the uh, straight and narrow. That's pretty obvious. He doesn't know how he ended up in the dark woods. Okay, so this is, uh, he's sleepy to his state of his soul. It could be a mortal sin. It could be many, 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 many venial sins that have numbed his soul to his quest. Uh, it doesn't quite say. I have my own theories as to what Dante's sin is. Um, but he doesn't know. So we can, wake, we can be that too, and it would help if we would wake up. Now, he doesn't know how he woke up, so he's lucky. There's some divine, divine intervention. It's a moment of grace. He can't wake himself up out of his sin. Something has to nudge him. That's what happens, I think. Okay. Um, the Mount of Joy. So he comes out of the woods. It's in a valley. It's in a valley of the shadow of death. And he sees a, a mount, and there's a sun rising. Um, and so um, he wants to climb it. But when I found myself at the foot of the hill at the edge of the woods beginning down in the valley where I first felt my heart plunge deep in fear, I raised my head and saw the hilltop shawled in morning rays of light sent from the planet, this means star, that leads men straight ahead on every road. So it's the sun, which literally you need the light of the sun to find your path, but it's also the truth of God to light your path. And uh, so he starts to climb uh, the mount. Let's see what I have next. I don't have that next. Okay, he starts to climb the mount, 
and he is uh, impeded by three beasts, a leopard, a lion, and a she-wolf. He gets around the first two. The third, the she-wolf, pushes him down, and he runs back down the mountain. So it's clear that the, the animals represent his sin, which sin is, scholars debate which sin. Um, but he thought he could make it up the mount and go to the truth while still in sin, while still attached to sin, and that's his error. So Virgil has to come to him and say, no, you can't get up to the top of the mount as long as you attach to some sin, whatever that sin is. Okay. Um, so that's, that's uh, who comes to him, Virgil, uh, the poet Virgil, who appears as a ghost. The characters in, especially Inferno, they're really ghost-like. He doesn't use the word ghost. He uses the word shade or shadow, but he can see them. He can recognize them, so they look like we would think of as a ghost, not Casper, but you know, the other kind of ghost. Uh, he lived uh, before Christ, author of the Aeneid, which is, uh, in the Middle Ages, the epic. They didn't know Homer hadn't been recovered fully, at least. So he knew the Aeneid. That's the book. That's the, that's the pagan book. Virgil was considered kind of a pagan prophet, even, of, uh, for the coming of Christ. Um, he's his teacher and his guide uh, in the, through the in, Inferno and then through most of Purgatorio, but in a sense in his life as well. He's Dante's literary inspiration. He's a denizen or citizen of limbo, which is very important. Dante puts two or three characters, pagans, in Purgatory and Perdiso. I would say three unbaptized pagans. Two of them living, two of them before Christ and one after Christ, if I remember correctly. And maybe, maybe they're all after. Double check the dates. But um, he could have put Virgil there. He could have saved Virgil, but he didn't. So uh, Dante uh, does show, he didn't say how, but it does show that it's possible for a pagan to be saved. Um, you don't get that if you only read the Inferno. I have to tell the students that in the class in which we only read the Inferno. Um, he witnessed the harrowing of hell. So when Christ uh, descends into hell and releases the uh, righteous from the Old Testament, and Dante names all the, um, he names Adam, and uh, Moses, and Noah, and Abram, and David. These are all covenant makers. He names them all, plus some others. Uh, so there, he witnessed that um, when he was, hadn't been in hell for very long. Um, he appears to Dante as a shadow. He leads Dante through hell and purgatory. Okay. So he is a, a fitting guide, but because Virgil's a pagan, there are things that he can't show Dante. He can't show them heaven. He can't show him heaven but he also might make mistakes along the way. So you have to pay careful attention to Virgil. He seems to know what he's talking about, but he might make some errors because even though symbolically he's thought to represent reason, or we might say more broadly virtue, uh, reason unaided by grace will run into a brick wall. Reason unaided by grace only gets you so far. It gets you very far, but it doesn't get you all the way that you need to go. So Virgil uh, is a good guide, um, but there are things he doesn't know, things that Dante knows that Virgil doesn't. The gate to hell. There's a famous line on this gate to hell. Uh, but when they go into the gate, uh, it says over it, this is not the entire inscription, part of the inscription. Just as it was that moved my great creator, divine omnipotence created me, and highest wisdom joined with primal love. So hell is made, justice moves God. But also omnipotence, 
So actually what we have here is the, uh, the Trinity here. We have the Creator, that's the One, and then we have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Divine omnipotence is the, the power. Omnipotence is an attribute that we give to the Father, wisdom to the Son, and love to the Holy Spirit. So we've got the doctrine, you could say, of the Trinity uh, summed up here on part of the gate to hell. Uh, now, there's this love part. Okay, we can see justice and power and wisdom, but love is, what, is what's going to throw people off. I was reading a, a blog recently um, by a writer called Rod Dreher. He wrote CrunchyCon about conservatives who also like granola, I think. <laughs> and um, he's rereading the Divine Comedy. And he's, he is, if you want to uh, Google him and find him, his commentary as he's reading, it's just his thoughts about it. They're excellent. They're very, very, very good. But people's comments about what he's writing are somewhat, I, I'm taken aback by some of them. Uh, they don't or can't get it. They're limited uh, by their philosophy, the worldview, their lack of faith. There's something that limits them. They can't even see very well the allegory that he's speaking of. It, it is quite striking. Like I'm thinking, you seem like an otherwise intelligent person, but your comments, and some of the people commenting didn't, haven't even read the book. They're just commenting on what he's writing. But um, they don't like, now a lot of people, they're not the only people, they don't like hell, the idea of hell. And they say, how can a loving God have a hell? Okay, well, I'm about to answer that question. Um, that's the love part. So hell is an act of love. In fact, we can say that hell is an act of mercy on the part of God and justice, right? God, in God, nothing's divided, right? Justice is his mercy. So the reason it's an act of mercy is that the souls in hell, as miserable as they are, are happier in hell than they would be in heaven. And therefore, the punishment, I'll explain that in a second, or I'll ask questions. So the punishment in hell, if we're going to call it that, the eternal life in hell, they're actually better off in that respect. So God would, if God were mean, he would make them be in heaven with him. Okay. Uh, anyone want to explain what I just said? Is it self-evident? Okay. Um, since their mind and their hearts are turned away from God, and they don't want to be in his presence... To force them into his presence would be more painful to them than to follow the path that they chose. Now, that objectively, of course, if they chose God, they would be happier in heaven. Subjectively, they're happier in hell. And, of course, the souls in heaven then are the happiest. They chose God. They're happy. That's what they wanted. Part of the divine economy of salvation here for Dante is you get what you want. Be careful what you ask for because you might just get it. Those who ask for God, even on their dying breath, get God. Well, if they say God or Mary, they get either one. They get two, two ways. Uh, so you get characters in purgatory who are murderers who, uh, on the, literally their dying breath, said Mary or Jesus, and they get to be in purgatory for a while. But obviously it wasn't just the word, it was the heart. There was a repentance at the end. The only difference between the souls in purgatory and the souls in hell, because they're both suffering, is the souls in purgatory repented, even at the last moment. Souls in hell did not, would not, will not. Okay, so um, does that make more sense? Yes. You have to uh, maybe think about it and see. You might not agree with it, but that seems to be what's happening. 
Um, okay, there was something else I was going to say about that. Anyway, that to me, so when you're reading Dante, you're thinking about these things, you don't have to get it just from Dante, you could get it from other sources. These are the kind of things that the poetry element, the, the similes especially, and we're probably dealing in translations, so we don't have all the loveliness of the original. But the, um, the idea is that you can draw from Dante um, and the beauty of the language and the story and the, the, the uh, sympathy you can have for Dante as a character make the Divine Comedy a, not only, a, it's a book that can change your life. And I'll talk about it more when we get to Beatrice especially when he encounters her in purgatory up in the top of purgatory. Uh, and I tell my students after they read it, assuming they do, I said, uh, if someone asks you if you've read the Inferno, you have to say to them, no, I've only read it once. That doesn't count. Okay? And there are people that read it every year. T.S. Eliot was a famous poet who read, I think he reread the Divine Comedy every year. I know Father Dwight uh, rereads it every year. There are people that reread it. Yes? How old are your children? <laughs> okay. Um, that's a purgatory, probably. Um, theologically, he's orthodox. He follows St. Thomas usually, although not always. Uh, his treatment of limbo, he adds some ideas to limbo which aren't uh, contradictory uh, to the faith, but he explores limbo uh, he kind of opens up limbo, he might say, to other people that might not otherwise have gotten it um, into it. We'll get, we'll get there. Uh, I can't think of anything. He does some controversial things. He's got some people in heaven. He has a famous heretic in heaven. Um, but that heretic might have, might have converted at the, end, at the end of his life. He, was an opponent, he actually was an opponent of Thomas Aquinas. But curiously, he's on Thomas's left. They're, they're next door neighbors in heaven, but he's on Thomas's left. Okay, which means that's the guy that was wrong, because he's on his left, the sinister side. So you, can, you read very carefully. Uh, there's this uh, there's this new union in heaven between two former opponents, but he also signals that Thomas was the right one, because he's on the right. But um, but there's no there's no problem with a heretic converting or renouncing his heresy being in heaven. So Dante may have known something we don't know, or um, otherwise I can't think of anything that is clearly would be unorthodox or wrong. He does things that you could dispute and disagree with, but nothing dogmatically that I can think of. Keep your eye out. You might find something that I've overlooked. Before me, hell, nothing, but eternal things were made, and I shall last eternally Abandon every hope, all ye who enter here. That's the famous line you can't see. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Of course, the souls in hell have no hope. The souls in purgatory have hope. They're both suffering, one uh, willing and joyfully, and the other not so much. Okay, now before me, nothing but eternal things were made. This could be the angels. Eternal things could also be man, have eternal souls. But uh, so let's say the angels were made, and on God's checklist, to-do list, okay, I got to make the angels. Next thing I do is make hell. So in Dante's conception, he doesn't go along the Genesis account. He's got the angels and then hell. He's got to make hell after he makes the angels. 
it's logical because why does hell have to be the next thing after the angels are made? They have to have some place to fall. Okay, so they have to have some place to choose. Okay, so and the angels having these pure intellects who don't need to learn anything and who know the consequences perfectly of their actions get one choice. Since we have to learn, we get, uh, I got to learn again, learn again, learn again. We have to learn over and over and over and over again. Uh, but the angels don't, can't do that. They know uh, they have a perfect vision. They choose, but they have to have something to choose. There have to be two things to choose. So it's God and not God. Now, I also emphasize to my students that Satan and, and hell and Satan, Satan is not 100% evil. Satan is still good in that he's a being created by God. He has an intellect and a will. All those things are good. They're, they're abused, they're misused, they're disordered. So the souls in hell, angelic and human souls, are still, there's still something good about them. If they were 100% evil, they would not exist. Okay? Uh, it's possible that God created hell not so that the angels would have some place to choose, but rather in response to the fact that the angels made a choice. Yeah, that's, that's a better way of putting it, actually. My son makes a, a wrong choice. Sometimes I then have to think of the consequence to give them. Yes. Yeah. No, that's probably a better way to to put it. I was uh, maybe too strong in my description there, but that is that's probably better. Not, although Satan would have known uh, the consequence, the precise exact consequence of his rebellion. He would have known what was what we'll see at the pit of hell. Satan knew that's what he would be, and he still chose it. But anyway, so Dante's trying to tell us something about sin as we go. Uh, Charon and the river Acheron, this is the, the river they pass to go into uh, hell. And it's one of the, my favorite lines in Divine Comedy. Um, uh, Virgil tells uh, Dante, he sees a river and all these souls are gathering at the river and they're trying to get onto a boat to cross the river. And he says, and these are the damned, uh, and, I mean, and I mean damned souls, uh, they want to cross the river. They are eager. It is divine justice that spurs them on, turning the fear they have into desire. So the fear they have has turned into desire. Okay, and I think this is um, quite interesting and profound way of looking at sin. Okay, if we look at the thing that man fears most is death. Sin brings man death. So to choose sin is to desire one's death. So sin is a kind of what we say death wish. So if we look at sin in that way, and Dante doesn't necessarily come up with this, but he gives this language, and these characters are acting like they want to, they're rushing to their punishment, then it causes us to maybe pause and think about our own sin and think, of, think about what it really is. Okay, that's what the Inferno is about, what sin really is. It's this death wish. And I tell my students also, think of the worst way the, way, the worst way to die, and then think what it would mean to desire that. Um, circle one, souls in limbo. Okay, the souls in limbo, the one thing they have in common is they're all unbaptized. If you're baptized, you're not in limbo. If you're baptized, you're in some other place in hell, purgatory, or paradiso, you're not in limbo. Limbo is, and this is, rule is not broken. Most of the rules in hell that I would say, the, the general rule in hell is this, it's broken somewhere in hell. And that's that chaos or disorder within the structure. Um, we're told by um, 
Virgil here, they have not sinned. That seems to be a bit overstated. I think uh, not that they haven't sinned, but they're not here because of sin. I think maybe. But he does say they haven't sinned. That's the literal. Uh, but their great worth alone was not enough, for they did not know baptism, which is the gateway to the faith you follow. And if they came before the birth of Christ, they did not worship God the way one should. I myself am a member of this group. This is where Virgil is. For this defect and for no other guilt, we, are, we here are lost. In this alone we suffer, cut off from hope. We live on in desire. This actually becomes a very important question in the 20th century when, uh, when theologians start uh, pondering, repondering uh, the difference between nature and grace. It might be the most important question of the 20th century, the relationship between nature and grace. And don't ask me to explain it. Okay, think about it. Uh, here you have unbaptized children. Um, you had here the righteous of the Old Testament, they've, but they've been taken in the harrowing of hell. You've got Greek, Greek and Roman poets, including Homer. Uh, Dante goes off with them and talks with them, talks with them for a while. Five other poets, including Virgil, so there's six of them. So what Dante is actually saying in the Divine Comedy that he's one of the six greatest poets in all of history. Well, it turns out to be true. He actually has overlapped some of them in the list. He's up there with Homer and probably above Virgil. So it's quite bold of him to say it, but history proved him right. If it hadn't, we wouldn't know that he was wrong. Okay, they've got ancient philosophers, such as Aristotle, Plato, and Socrates. They're great warriors, Hector, Aeneas, and Saladin, which is the important one, I think. And then modern, modern for them, thinkers, or relatively modern, Averroes and um, Avicenna. These are Muslims. And so one thing that Dante does, uh, which is extraordinary, is uh, put the three Muslims into limbo, especially because in the Middle Ages, Islam was not considered a separate religion, but a heresy and schism. Uh, of Christianity, of the church. So he could have easily put them further in hell where you find Muhammad. Uh, Muhammad's quite deep in hell. Uh, but he sees something great about these characters. Uh, they're pagans, uh, but he get, puts them in limbo. Now, limbo, when you get into limbo, limbo is the only place of natural light in hell. Uh, people are walking around, they're talking to each other, there's friendship, there's arch beautiful architecture, uh, there's a beautiful green space like the Elysian Fields. It's kind of like a utopia. So this is why I say the limbo is human excellence unredeemed by grace. So what you find in, in did I say utopia? What you find in limbo is human excellence unredeemed by grace. So you have the best what man can offer here, poetry, um, philosophy, I guess not theology, but uh, the best that man can offer on his own. And so if you're going to be in hell, this is the, well, if you're baptized, you're not going to be in limbo. But if you were going to be in hell, this is the place to be because it's like a utopia on earth. Uh, what they have, though, is this, back to this desire question. They have a desire of some sort. Um, it's undeveloped because what they can't know through human philosophy and excellence and all the virtues, what they cannot know is the Blessed Trinity. Philosophy can't bring you to that. And it never did, and it couldn't. And so what Dante is showing here, human excellence is good. Um, uh, and we can draw much from it, but what we can't do, what human excellence unaided by grace cannot do, is give us the beatific vision. That takes intervention by God. Now, who, to whom God gives his grace is up to God. Okay, so... Um, that's why Dante puts in some pagans in heaven as well. So Dante says, I don't know. You got some pagans up there, a couple of them at least. Okay, so 
Uh, people get disturbed by some other things of limbo, like it seems not fair, especially with the unbaptized children. But the point is that the baptism is the ordinary means of grace, the initial gateway sacrament. So um, this is the best you can have. Okay, so you look at the world. The best that the world can give us without the great, without grace, or let's say without the church, and it's not going to give us the best. But if it could give us the best, it would be this. And people would still have an aching in their heart. Okay? So what, that, what the relationship between that desire is to nature and that desire is to grace was that, that question I mentioned. I don't know that it was solved satisfactorily. I think we have to probably go back to see what St. Thomas says about that. Um, so limbo, then, is best interpreted on the allegorical level, which is one of the points. If you get stuck on the literal level of limbo, you won't understand what he's getting at. Okay? So he's not a Pelagian at all. Okay, um, one of the most famous uh, characters in uh, the Inferno and in all the divine comedy is uh, Francesca. Francesca and Paolo, they're in the uh, circle of the lustful. The, you get the judge at this point. Minos, he's kind of a, he was King Minos, but he's got a tail now. And uh, so he's monstrified. He judges you and then uh, sends you down to your level. He didn't judge those in limbo. Okay? So he's after them. Um, Francesca and Paolo. Um, Dante says, I learned that to this place of punishment, all those who sin in lust have been condemned those who make reason slave to appetite. So their appetite ruled them. This could be said of all the ones in the incontinent sections, but uh, specifically here. Uh, very, very famous passage in the 19th century, especially people thought just Francesca and Paolo were the most romantic couple, like the Romeo and Juliet of the 13th century. And these were real people. Uh, Francesca and Paolo. Uh, Francesca was married to Paolo's brother, and there's a story about she thought she was going to marry Paolo, but brother showed up at the wedding, and she married him, and uh, he was older and uglier. And so she has this affair with the brother, Paolo. The, the, the husband comes in and kills them, uh, catching them. Okay. Oh, that's just romantic. It's kind of like Romeo and Juliet. I'm going to read to you part of what she says. She's very charming. She says to Dante, If the king of the universe were our friend, we would pray that he might give you peace, since you show pity for our grievous plight. So she's very charming. She seems to bless Dante, um, which, of course, she can't really be doing, right? This is something akin to flattery, right? This is, she just wants the attention. Uh, it is important here that she says that Dante shows pity because Dante pities a lot of the characters in hell. He's crying all the time. He's fainting when he sees the punishments. Sometimes he gets mad at somebody, pulls their hair out or kicks them, something like that, but he's often fainting and he's crying and he's weeping for what he sees. And the lesson he has to learn, which he tells us towards the beginning, is not to pity the souls in hell. He has to learn not to. That's his major lesson, actually. Because to pity someone is to, uh, you pity someone who suffers unjustly and you try in mercy to relieve their suffering. Otherwise, what is it? What is pity? Otherwise, it's just an emotion, okay? So, but if you truly have mercy or pity, you will do what you can to relieve the unjust suffering. There's no unjust suffering here. Um, it's just, and it's the suffering they chose. So Dante has to see that it's for sin for what it is. Okay. Anyway, so she goes on. Uh, we long to hear and speak of that 
Um, no, this is Dante. He wants to hear what they have to say. And then uh, she goes on. Love, this is her story. Love, quick to kindle in the gentle heart, sees this man. She's flying around there. They're flying around the air. Um, and this is symbolic of the lust that um, controlled them, that uh, carried them away. They were carried away by the lust. So they're, all the uh, uh, sinners and lusts are being blown about eternally. Love, and she's there with Paolo. This is kind of unusual that he's flying around there with her. Very romantic. Love, quick to kindle in the gentle heart, sees this man with a fair form taken from me. The way of it afflicts me still. So he just loved how beautiful I was. Love, which absolves no one beloved from loving. We couldn't help it. Sees me so strongly with his charm that as you see, it has not left me yet. Love brought us to one death. Cain awaits for him who quenched our lives. That's the husband, she says, is deeper down in hell towards the, the bottom. Okay, so love, I have here love, love, love. She's very charming. Love did this, love did that. Can help us love, love, love. All you need is love. <laughs> but what you notice is, you might not notice, or you might notice, I noticed, what she says about Paolo. Did you notice what she called him? I'm just reading very quickly. Did you hear the name Paolo? No, because she didn't say Paolo. This one. This guy over here. The guy that I love so much. She's not even looking at him. She's looking at Dante. Okay, so now you see that the, uh, the lust is a perversion of love because even though there's another person involved in here, really what lust is about the person. Okay, not about the, the, the beloved. Because um, to, to love Paolo well is to love Paolo's brother, who's um, her husband. That's how she has to love Paolo, as a uh, brother-in-law. So the, her love is mixed up. Okay, but uh, yeah, his name is never mentioned. It's this one, this one. And I think the punishment for Paolo, think about it. He's flying around eternity to this woman who can't stop talking. Um, and then uh, the story she tells is, how did this happen? Well, we were just reading a book together one day, just innocently. You know the book was about Lancelot and Guinevere? We were reading this book about Lancelot, and they kissed in the book, and he leaned over and kissed me, and she says, uh, after that we read no further. <laughs> That's how she puts it. Well, you can look at it more than one way. One reason they read no further is... You can look at it one way, but also the husband comes in and kills them both. Um, but, okay, so um, uh, scholars now pretty much agree Dante doesn't mean this really to be terribly romantic. But he sees how you can be, you can be absorbed in the romance and fall into her mistake. Uh, I'm going to skip circle three. It's very obvious. It's the gluttons. Cherubus. Circle four, the prodigal and avaricious. The reason I like this Prodigal is wasteful. You'll see this translated different ways, but the prodigal son is the prodigal son not because he returns, and a lot of people think prodigal means to come back. It's because he wastes. Okay, so um, it's the same word. Um, and the avaricious. Um, Plutus is the guardian here. He's the god of wealth. Um, he was squandering. That's another word for that in hoarding. That have robbed them of the lovely world and got them in this brawl. I will not waste words describing it. Virgil says, and they kind of go on. But what they're doing is, they're rolling these rocks, these boulders against each other in the circle, and the, the, the um, prodigal go one way, and the avaricious go the other. They bang. They yell at each other. Why do you squander? Why do you hoard? And they turn around and go the other way. Boom, and they hit, and then boom, they hit for eternity. And, um, you know, I tell my students, if I were going to have to choose a friend, the prodigal or the avaricious, 
I'm choosing the prodigal, right? Because he's uh, spending, you know, taking me out to dinner and paying for this. And, uh, but it's all un it's irrational. It's unreasonable. It's, it's disordered. Um, it's not really generosity. It looks like generosity. But prodigality is not. There's something rotten about it. Uh, the prodigal um, take their comfort in things that they're buying, okay? Uh, the avaricious take comfort in the safety that money gives them. And what they don't realize, and I think this is the reason they're like this all the time, is that if they looked at the other person, you'd say, your, your extreme is what I need to go towards. And for me to be virtuous, I need to split the difference, right, from each one. The prodigal needs to, be, need to hold on to some of his money and then use it reasonably. Uh, and the avaricious needs to, uh, you know, take the money out of his pocket and, and spend it in a reasonable way, rational way, ordered towards the good, his own good and the common good. Okay, so they're at loggerheads for eternity. And never able, they, of course they can't see. If they had seen it in, in life, they wouldn't be here. Um, but again, you're still going to be friends with the prodigal. Uh, circle five, uh, the wrathful. Yeah, we, we're still about halfway down. Uh, we'll see what we can do in 15 minutes. Uh, the wrathful and the slothful. Um, okay, the, the important thing here is the wrathful's obvious. The slothful Dante combines with the sullen. And it looks like um, what he's doing here is the, they're in the river sticks. So there's, they have something in common. The wrathful are, uh, we might think they'd be violent. They're a section for violent later on, but... I guess wrathful is this, uh, this anger that comes out of you and you have, you have no desire to control. You're just a, you know, this angry person and you've done nothing. Uh, and you, you, uh, it can be quick, um, but um, it rules you. The, uh, so the anger is directed outward. It looks like Dante thinks the slothful have something like the wrathful because they're here together, but it may be it's inwardly directed. There may be some kind of inner um, loathing that causes the sloth. Okay, I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. It's interesting to look at that and ponder what he's doing there. Um, he comes into the city of Dis, which is the, the lower hell. It's an iron um, walled city. Represents the hardening of the will. Uh, the Furies are there. they causing them some trouble. Up to this point, every time, and this is one of the rules of hell is whenever they're confronted by a character. Virgil says, almost literally, we're on a mission from God. And then the characters back off. Oh, okay, sorry about that. Uh, and they let him through. When he gets to uh, malice, the, the lower hell, which is malice, which is ill will, and he says this, they just, they slam the door on him. That's the exception to that rule I said. The, if you say you're on a mission from God, they got to let you through, except right here, because the, the will is so hardened. And then Dante has to be rescued. And he gets really scared at this point because he's being threatened. And uh, an angel comes across and opens, you know, touches the door. Come on. And the door opens and the angel goes back up to heaven. Um, okay, so uh, we'll proceed down lower into hell. Uh, circle six, the heretics. I could say, um, skipping a little bit. Um, the heretics are, what Dante means by heresy is natural heresy which can be, anyone can be guilty of, Christian or not, pagan or, or whatever. And by natural heresy, he seems to mean the denial of the immortality of the soul. So if you, that is the, he thinks, the fundamental 
natural philosophical principle about man that his soul is immortal and that philosophy can bring you to that conclusion. You don't need theology for that. And so these are characters who deny the immortality of the soul. Uh, they are lying in tombs that are heated, like ovens, the, the lids off. Okay, and he talks to a couple of the characters. One of them is the father of Dante's best friend. And what he learns about this uh, is a principle that applies to the heretics in particular, but it might apply to everyone in hell, but it's most appropriate for these heretics. You have to remember they deny the immortality of the soul. But what happened at the last judgment is the lid will be put onto the tomb. Uh, so they will be in darkness within darkness, you might say. But also we learn that the heretics, and maybe the other souls in hell, but specifically the heretics, can see the future, which means they can make prophecies. So Dante can put prophecies in that come true because he's writing it after the prophecies happen. So he's really good at that. The, um, they can see the future. They can see the past, but they can't see the present. So whenever uh, Dante asks him about, or they have a conversation about what's happening now in Florence, they don't know. Why this is brilliant, I think, when you start thinking about it, especially with the heretics, they deny the immortality of the soul. So when the, the uh, last judgment comes, and they're locked away, and uh, the new heavens and new earth, what you have in heaven is, or in the new heavens and earth, is an eternal now in the presence of God. So in a sense, in the universe at that point, you could say, there is no future. There's kind of a timelessness. And the, the, the past is irrelevant at this point. Uh, so you ha if you have an eternal now and you can't see the present, what are you? You deny the immortality of the soul. You, it's, it's as close to the destruction of the soul without destroying it. Now, the, some readers will say what, they, what they're left with is only the awareness of themselves in hell. And if you've read um, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, which is based on this, that's the punishment of the evildoers, I believe. They're completely isolated for eternity. They move further and further and further apart from other souls. So they have only self-awareness. So it's not the hell of other people. It's hell is only me. Okay? The people in hell turn themselves from, in a sense, from persons to individuals. I was just telling my class this today, the, the, uh, the damage to human thought that the word individual has introduced. Because we're created, in certain senses, as individuals, but as human persons. And we're persons because God is three persons. That's where the idea of person comes from. So person is a being in communion with other persons. An individual is what? An individual doesn't have to be in communion. So if we think of ourselves as individuals, that's, you know, we're on the path to hell. That's what hell is, a bunch of individuals. They are not in communion with anyone. The souls in heaven are like God, who's a, a communion of persons. So the souls in heaven, the saints, and we even in society today, should be communion of persons, not of individuals. Okay, that's an uh, insidious idea. Uh, okay, at least I think. I like to think of myself as a person, not just an individual. Uh, Phlegathon, okay, the, the Minotaur's um, violence against neighbor, this is pretty easy. There's a bloody, boiling river, and the, the greater your crime of violence against neighbor, the deeper you are. It's shallow to deep. So um, 
a, 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 a mass murderer would be deep into the boiling, bloody river of Phlegathon. Okay, so that one's very easy to see what he's getting at. Violence against self. Uh, there are two uh, groups of people, the suicides and the, um, the profligates. The profligates are like the prodigals, but the profligates wasted their stuff in a violent way. Like there, there was a profligate society uh, in the Florence area, and these were spoiled rich kids who burned their houses down. and did, you know, they, did, they destroyed their property. So those are the profligates. Okay, they just, they're, they're like killing themselves, but they're property. Um, otherwise, the suicides are these tree bush-like creatures, and the reason they're like this is um, they threw off their, their, um, their bodies. Their, uh, they killed themselves, and so in the end, their bodies are just going to hang from a branch, whereas everybody else, at least in the resurrection of the body, gets their body back. When you get your body back in hell, which you do, which everyone does at the resurrection, uh, your pains increase. And he knows that because of something Aristotle says. There's a little lesson of Aristotle in there. Okay. Um, violence against God. The first is blasphemy. Here we go. Once I was once alive, I still am dead. This is Capaneus, who was struck down by Jupiter for blaspheming Jupiter. Now, you think, if you blaspheme a false god, why don't you get credit for that? Well, blaspheming a false god that you believe is the real god, in your heart, you're a blasphemer. But this is the, the key. When I was once alive, I still am dead. Okay? Boom. That's it. What you are in hell, you don't turn into something else. It's what you were when you died. Okay? Um, so that, that was an obvious one. He's on this fiery plane with the fire raining down on him. Uh, now we get to a controversial one. Uh, some places, uh, you know, want to, to ban Dante, and this is one of the reasons. Uh, this is uh, the violence against God subcategory nature, and the sin here is sodomy. They're on a fiery plane, uh, and they're in constant motion. So they're like the souls in the lustful circle. And when you get to purgatory, the lustful and the, the sodomite lustful are together in purgatory. He doesn't make a distinction, but he doesn't help. Um, they're in a fiery plane and they're running around in circles. The difference between, part of the difference is that they're under their own will here because they're providing the motion, the locomotion, and the souls in the lustful section above were being buffeted by the winds. I did not dare step off the margin path to walk at his own level. Um, this is Brunetto Latini he's talking about, which was a, an older man who was someone Dante admired and studied poetry with. Uh, with head bent low in reverence, I moved along. So the scene between Dante and Brunetta Latini is very important, I think, because it shows some things that people aren't willing to look at today in modern society. Um, but um, by violence against nature, what Dante means here by nature is the created order to begin with. And because we're part of the created order and because we're moral beings, our actions have proper ends, okay? And our faculties have proper ends. The intellect, the end of the intellect is the truth. Uh, the end of the, the will is to follow the good. The end of the eye, the purpose of the eye is to see, right? The purpose of the, the, the mouth and the digestive system is for nourishment. Those are all clearly natural ends uh, that we have. And the, the, those guilty of, of sodomy are guilty against the natural end of procreation. They can't procreate. That's why also they're on this plane with the fire raining down. It's sometimes called the infertile plane. Now, think what Dante is also showing us here in his, in his encounter with Brunetta Latini, whom he wants to embrace, 
but he can't. Uh, they're separated uh, by the, he's walking on a, like a dike. Brunetta Latini is down below, and it's also on a fiery plane, so Dante doesn't want to go down there because there's the fear that he'll be burned up. And also Brunetta Latini is charred, but he has this desire to greet his friend. So he still has this love for Brunetta Latini and a pity which he needs to unlearn. But what Dante's showing us here visually and in the, the circumstance that he's given us is that the sin, that Brunetta Latini's sin of sodomy is a barrier to friendship, to real friendship ordered towards God. Okay, he can't have that with Brunetta Latini. He might have thought he had it on the earth, but he, he can't now. And it's the sin that's the barrier between them. Okay, so I think there's a lot here, again, uh, one can ponder, but one has to understand what nature means. Nature doesn't, doesn't mean simply I go out and I see what's in the woods and on the lake and things and the birds, and that's part of nature. Uh, but it's also nature has to do with the order of nature and the order of human acts, the proper order of human acts uh, to fulfill the human being. Okay, um, I had to spend a lot of time in class on that. Um, zipping through here. Um, circle eight, fraud. I'll mention a couple of these. Fraud is um, deception of someone for your own sake. Hypocrisy is pretense to virtue. Hypocrisy is not simply doing, saying one thing and doing another. The hypocrite might do that, but you might say one thing and do another but not be a hypocrite. It may be another motivation. Hypocrisy at its source is pretense to virtue, pretending to be better than you are. And what he has here, uh, very quickly, there are a lot of, by the way, there are a lot of priests and bishops and popes in Dante's hell. And here, especially, you've got that. There are uh, men who are cloaked in this beautiful golden cloak, but the cloak is made of lead. Uh, so on the outside, they're beautiful, but they can only move like this. In fact, Dante says if Dante, if Dante and Virgil take a step, they feel like they're running past the uh, hypocrites. And I think what Dante's saying here in the imagery is that hypocrisy, it makes you feel good, on the outside, but it is one of the worst things to retard spiritual growth or movement is hypocrisy. Because if you have a pretense to virtue, you see, then you don't aim for the virtue. It's kind of a lie to oneself. So this is great, uh, the, the, the slowing down um, of hypocrisy. And you also see, uh, I won't go into this because we're towards the end, I think, but Caiaphas is down here too. It's very interesting to think about why Caiaphas, the high priest, is a hypocrite. It's actually what Dante's getting at might be something very, very, very interesting. So you can go home and think, well, how is Caiaphas? Is it simply because the religious leaders were hypocrites? Or does he mean that Caiaphas, in particular, does something to reveal his hypocrisy? And the implications are, are um, quite extraordinary, I think. Um, we're right at eight. Should I pause and finish next week? Should I tell... Probably. Okay, I'm near the end, but I've got another five slides or so. Um, I'm at a, um, another one of my favorite spots, um, Fraud, False Counsel, because this is an important scene. But it's 8 o'clock in two seconds, three seconds, four seconds. <laughs>